Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Business Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Just months after being cleared to enter service, Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets are grounded by the FAA after a fuselage plug blew out on an Alaska Airlines flight. After a surging bull run, markets are again worried about whether a recession is coming. Delta scales back on pilot hiring, takeaways from Bank of America's annual Defense and Aerospace Conference, and predictions for the year ahead. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners, and Richard Ablafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory. Guys, hope everybody had merry holidays and a very happy new year. And Ron and Richard, it was terrific seeing you uh, up in New York uh, at uh, the Bank of America conference, which we are partnered on. So it was an absolute pleasure. It's great to be back, Vago. Uh, good holiday season, but uh, ready to get back in the saddle. Thank you, Vago. Great to be back and happy new year to you all. Yeah, great to be back indeed. And uh, very well done, Ron. A terrific conference. Uh, this show is about predictions on what we think uh, are going to be the major stories uh, or the important stories of the year uh, over the holidays. Uh, Ron and Sash want to get your sense uh, from a European perspective. It went from everything is awesome to, oh, my God, we might actually have a recession. That sentiment was reflected in this year's uh, conference. Uh, you know, arguably the biggest story of the year is going to be whether or not uh, we think, uh, you know, what, what we think is going to happen on inflation, what we think is going to happen on broader markets and on the broader economy. And then, of course, we've got a lot of wars that are ongoing and a major political race in 2024 that it's also going to be shaping markets uh, as well. Ron, walk us through. What do, what do you think are going to be the big trends that we saw over the holidays and what they're going to mean, right? Because market sentiment even changed between when between our last show of the year and this one. Yeah, it's interesting and I think informative to look at uh, some of the performance in our group this year. Then we can expand that out to the broader market. Um, last week, the S&P was down a percent. The names that underperformed last year actually outperformed the S&P. So broadly, the defense names did better than the S&P, and the commercial names did worse than the S&P. Uh, and the 10-year and the yield is about 4%. It's been hovering there now for a while. Um, when you when you think about the coming year, at least this is what I think about, just so let me remind everybody, I'm not Bank of America's strategist or economist. I'm just the aerospace guy. But you know, things that give me pause, and I think give other people pause, uh, coming into 24, there was such a broad consensus view that everything is awesome or maybe everything's okay when the consensus is all on on one side of the argument sometimes that can be worrisome because many times it's the contrarians that, that that are right now contrarians aren't always right i mean i like to frame it as if the building's on fire and the consensus views to run out and that's definitely the right thing you probably don't want to stay inside but if you think about last year just as a, as a case in point uh, you know, coming into the year, uh, many folks were saying we were going to have a recession. Markets weren't going to perform very well. And when it was all said and done, the S&P was up over 20%. No recession happened. So that consensus view at the beginning of the year was was, was really horribly wrong uh, by the end of the year. And then another quick point, um, you have an S&P that was up, you know, over 20% in 23. Generally, that doesn't happen two years in a row. So, you know, even with... Um, uh, Good, mark, you know, good economic indicators, even with some lights flashing, everything's okay, or maybe even everything is awesome. Uh, do markets take pauses? Yeah, it's never up 
to the right at 45 degrees forever. That's, it's usually a bumpy track. So we'll see where it all goes. But um, uh, if anything, I think, you know, that's, that, that, that's probably the worry. And then one of the arguments that got brought up at the conference was about, you know, just sort of the money supply is still humongous. And if you're a monetarist uh, and you see all this money supply out there, that leads you to one conclusion that inflation isn't over, but, but we'll see where it all goes. Um, my, my view is, uh, and again, this isn't P of A's view or anybody else's, just Ron's view. Um, I, I don't think we quite know where we are, right? I mean, we went through a period of such global disruption with the pandemic that there's no economists alive that have lived through something like this, maybe on a very small scale in some parts of the world around SARS and this and that. But it, you know, that was really, really, really been kind of small potatoes compared to what the world went through. So we'll see where it all goes. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic, but, uh, but I am a little bit guarded because of the way the consensus is positioned. Sash, I want to get uh, your sense on sort of European market projections and your uh, sense on what this coming year is going to look like, right? I mean, the security situation is still very dicey. Some of the same drivers uh, are there. There was a sense that European uh, European central bankers were going to follow sort of a USQ cut interest rates uh, as well. Uh, and so there's been a little bit of a rally there as, as well. Walk us through how you think this is all going to evolve uh, from, a, for Euro- from a European standpoint, because it, it's going to be a bumpy and interesting, you know, this year will be as bumpy and interesting as last year was. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll deal with the last uh, issue first. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. The markets were rallying with the expect, expectation that uh, the European Central Bank would cut rates. Um, and then we had the print of uh, Eurozone inflation, which was, you know, two and, a, two and a half percent, way higher than was forecast. And all of a sudden, you know, people just got back in their shells again, because um, if, you know, the Eurozone typically, infl- you know, inflation in, in the last decade or so has been, um, very, very, you know, percent and a bit, um, up at 2.3%. There's a feeling that Eurozone uh, bankers cannot cut rates. Uh, and so that that sort of made people quite cautious. I've, you know, it goes back to what Oran says. None of the economists have, have got the experience of markets and geopolitical situations like this. And I'm afraid I think that really shows in the, uh, the lack of confidence in forecasts at the moment. Um, switching subject slightly or switching direction slightly i'm less worried in terms of uh you know stock market performance by macro macroeconomic issues and i am by macro political issues which is 2024 is the year of elections there are so many elections in very 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 populous parts of the world this year that the chance that all of those go swimmingly is feels vanishingly small to me and the risk that we have some serious upsets, you know, in some ways or, or others is, I think, very, very high. And, you know, so to add to what's already a very heated uh, geopolitical situation, because we've got wars going on, you know, we've got elections in the US, the UK, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. I mean, all three of those countries, how likely is it that, that all three go very, very, oh, you know, calmly, pretty unlikely, I think, Indonesia. Um, one of the most populous nations on the planet, but that we talk about very, very little. Taiwan, well, you know, that's great, isn't it? And the EU um, and Finland. Um, and that that isn't even half of the nations having elections. Those are just the ones that I think, uh, you know, could be extremely interesting and could affect how we look, particularly at defence, but also at, at, at civil aerospace and the uh, the prospects for, for that industry. So I think it's the, you know, it's the year of elections. That's what I worry about 
um, more, or I, you know, I'm focused on more than I am on uh, normal economic performance, because I think economic performance will follow political performance or, or lack of. Uh, Richard, uh, let me uh, bring you into this. Right during the conference, we heard uh, a, a lot about you know market uh, forecasts. Uh, you certainly w- were uh, one of those, whether on the defense side or as well as on the commercial and business aviation uh, side of things. You know, we just saw Delta sort of dial back on hiring uh, new pilots, which could be seen as an indicator. What's what's your sense on what the economic mechanics of the year look like? What does it mean for commercial aviation? What does it mean for aircraft production? Uh, at the end of the year, and and also your views on on defense and politics as well, right? I mean, this year is going to be a highly consequential uh, election year in the United States, uh, uh, you know, which which arguably is uh, the most important of the races uh, around the world. Yeah, well, whether it's a macroeconomic risk, as Ron correctly outlines, or whether it's a you know geopolitical risk, as uh, Sash correctly outlines, it's shaping up to be a world a, a year of world instability, uh, which. You know, broad, broadly speaking, should mean continued uh, very strong funding for defense, not just in the U.S., but, you know, everywhere and uh, a lot of uncertainty and perhaps preventive or precautionary pulling back on the civil side. Uh, having said that, you know, right now it, it's not showing up in the numbers that we had just finished up with a, a terrific year in terms of uh, book to bill ratios at the, at the jet manufacturers. And the biggest problem was building stuff, which raises question the question that maybe the you know sort of nightmare scenario for civil is kind of a stagflation model where you know you've got very strong increases in manufacturing prices thanks primarily to strong defense demand you know just a huge diversion of productive resources to defense and at the same time you know perhaps a little bit of uh, sluggishness conceivably if there if there is a recession you know uh, one presenter uh, did a great job outlining risks there in terms of debt, as you say, money supply, everything like that. Um, that <laughs> far from foreordained, far from it. Right now, it's it's not showing up. The one area of concern that I would highlight um, and did so is that you know a lot of the orders we've been seeing have been for wide bodies, and there's so much double counting in that traffic that we run the risk this time of a potentially. Uh, much nastier wide body bu- bubble. You know, we saw bubbles before in aircraft orders, but what if it translates to deliveries? You know, you've got an awful lot of people chasing exactly the same traffic, you know, whether they're the Gulf super connectors, the wannabe super connectors in Turkey and Saudi Arabia, the people who want their traffic back in India and elsewhere, and also Ethiopia and Morocco, wherever else, all of them ordering large numbers of wide bodies. And many of, them, many of them are massively funded, indeed overfunded with sovereign wealth funds. And whatever else at this time, it might just be not just a, an orders bubble, but an actual deliveries and capacity bubble, which is a little concerning. You could see some of this manifest itself later in the year and certainly in the years to come. Uh, but, you know, you look at just the market drivers, you know, on defense, very strong, not going to change because of that instability. Uh, and on the civil side, you know, it would, uh, it, let's just say it would take more than what we've seen to derail mm-hmm. what is a, a pretty strong commercial recovery. But I understand completely the risks involved given you know, the nature of the world today. Ron and Sash, your guys' sense on, uh, you know, what, what the air travel market is going to look like and what it means for manufacturers at a time when they're, they've been struggling to gear up? Yeah, the recovery uh, in, in aviation in, in terms of, you know, productive capacity has lagged other industries. And we're seeing, you know, the, the industry struggle to uh, 
um, produce airplanes. Um, you know, you could argue that from two points of view. I mean, clearly in the moment, that's bad. Um, but, you know, what we've seen, for example, in the business jet market, because business jet manufacturers couldn't spit out airplanes at a rate that they wanted to during the, 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 the highest peaks of COVID demand for private aviation, that probably saved the industry from a wicked downturn, right? And extended the cycle for business aviation. So on the other hand, if you look at, you know, both Boeing and Airbus, Boeing more so than Airbus being constrained about the number of aircraft that they can deliver, maybe that just softens the cyclicality, at least for for a while on, on the industry as they work to get their productive capacity back. Uh, I'm certain we'll talk about this in, in just a little while, but you know, one does have to scratch their head after the events at Alaska Airlines and, you know, the labor force. Uh, you have to think that, you know, a, uh, a less tenured labor force is more apt to make mistakes. We've seen that across other other industries and airplane operations and all kinds of things. So uh, I think, you know, brings us back to what to look out for in, in 2024. And uh, one of the big things on the commercial aerospace side is, you know, the, the ramp that you know, both major manufacturers and some of the minor manufacturers have uh, projected and hoped for is, is, not, is not ordained at this point. You still have supply chain challenges. You still have labor challenges. And um, we'll see where that all goes. So I think everybody has to look at their, their projections and, and take a little bit of grain of salt because there's, there's a lot of moving parts right now in terms of uh, both uh, the supply chains and labor markets. You know, I want to uh, pull on that uh, a, a little bit, right? We we have the Alaska Airlines uh, incident. Um, I uh, you just had uh, an in-flight, uh, uh, you know, uh, depressurization incident, albeit not uh, nearly uh, as dramatic. I've had two aborted landings because there was stuff on the runway, uh, right? So a lot of concerns that all, you know. And in Japan, we just had an accident with a Japan Airlines jet, uh, unfortunately hitting a Japan Coast Guard. Uh, aircraft and astonishingly, everybody, something like 379 passengers, safely got off of that A350 uh, that was uh, consumed in, in in flames. But it does seem like the whole system is kind of on the edge of of potential calamity or 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 managing to dodge bigger bigger bullets. Right? I mean, is this just an aftermath? You think of COVID? We almost shut the whole system down. People retired. You know what I mean? Everything was sort of derailed. We were building airplanes maybe out of sequence. I mean, is this is this a hangover that's going to last longer and potentially, you know, end up being deadly in some cases, as opposed to just near misses and occasional accidents that, you know, fortunately don't cost any lives. Sadly, it did cost five lives of the six that were on the Japan uh, Coast Guard aircraft, sadly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a an important question, um, and, and you know, I don't say that lightly. But I think, and again, there's kind of two ways to look at it. I'd say on the glasses half full size, it is pretty remarkable that a, a door plug blew out of an airplane at sixteen thousand feet. The airplane landed safely. Nothing got sucked out the door other than some headsets and some blankets, um, and everybody, you know. So, hey, wow, all right. Um, yeah. And then two on the, the Japan Airlines uh, situation, where everybody did get out of the airplane. Right? You know, under these situations, you, it kind of does give you a level of confidence that you know, the you know, the safety culture is perme- per- permeated enough that even some really horrific things can happen. And 
it works out okay. Now, you know, uh, uh, on the flip side, um, I, I kind of think about it, and it's just because it's in the forefront of my head, that, like this submarine industrial base, right? You, you stop making submarines for six years, and we're still paying the price for that. And that was a long time ago when we stopped submarine production, right? Trying to get that supply chain back up and going, you know, trying to get to two Virginia class a year, and we're kind of seems like we're stuck at about 1.3. And a lot of that just has to do with because the system shut down. So when you when you think about what COVID did to the industry and all the disruptions and 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 fear and apprehension and risk mitigation that companies and and the broader industry were were trying to deal with, I think it's only natural that we're going to have you know the, the the situation we're in now. Now, hopefully, nothing bad really I mean, bad things have happened. Right? So, but hopefully, nothing truly catastrophic happens. Um, but, um, I would have to say, you know, I, I, I do worry about that a little bit more than I did before because the industry is definitely in a much more stress capacity position across pretty much every vector than it's probably ever been before because of all the disruption related to COVID. Um, uh, Sash and, and Richard, your guys sense, and if you guys want to pave this into a discussion about Boeing, uh, go ahead and, and do that. Uh, as well, even though we think this is a supplier problem, still the airplane has Boeing on 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 the side of it, and unfortunately, we're going into another year where the, we were discussing the magnitude of the challenges and it being a storyline this year. And this just underscores the fact, uh, you know, God willing, it's a small thing. We inspect it; the airplane's fine. It goes ahead, um, or we we find that it's not fine and it's not easy and it be does become something uh, expensive even though i think a large number of those airplanes or or a hefty chunk of those airplanes have been inspected and passed uh, inspection go ahead sash and then richard yeah look, i'll just start with a, a prediction to 2024 the civil aerospace ramp ain't going to happen or at least nowhere near what is in consensus forecasts at the moment i don't normally feel quite so punchy so early in, in the year but i just think everything is stacked against the sort of numbers that companies are, are working towards, companies are telling their investors that they're working towards and, you know, would like to have reflected in their share prices. Uh, I think everybody is, uh, you know, the supply chain is clearly very, very fragile, uh, whether it is quality problems uh, or uh, issues just with uh, increasing ca uh, capacity of long lead items that are very, very complex to make. You know the old, uh, the old uh, favourites, castings and forgings, uh, and so forth. Um, you know everything we see at the moment. I think it's going to be much harder to increase uh, production this year than people are expecting. And maybe on top of that, Boeing is going to have even greater problems with the entire Max line if there is greater uh, focus on the Max because of that. You know what appears to be a quality problem, but you know a horrible quality problem uh, with the Alaskan Airlines uh, aircraft. And hence, the FAA is not going to cut them any slack in terms of certification of Max 7 and, and probably Max 10. You know, I think it speaks to a, a broader issue that we've been discussing for, uh, I think, years now with regard to Boeing, which is this cultural disconnect between management and the people who build planes. And that's not, not a psychological barrier. It's not one of those things. Uh, you know, you've got an alienated workforce turning into, uh, you know, into, well, people who, who don't do as good a job. It's not that. It's just that management systematically 
scales to estimate the resources needed. Uh, they simply say, okay, we will build X, it will cost that. And uh, maybe they've got some intermediary executives who you know, don't do a particularly great job in outlining what is really needed. And I don't care whether it takes place at the supplier level or at the Boeing level. Ultimately, it's Boeing's responsibility. And indeed, their track record of treating suppliers as if they were some sort of disposable commodity, you know, partnering for success, whatever, it speaks to that systematic underestimation of resources needed to build and inspect jets. Uh, that needs to change. They need to change their culture. <laughs> you know, until then, uh, we'll have uh, unpleasant surprises like this. Now, in terms of what they're likely to do, well, obviously, this will take time, not a whole lot of it, because this isn't a design thing. It's just going to be, what, 48 hours per jet, you know, and of course, whatever keystrokes are needed to insert into the uh, the process of building new ones. Could that, you know, slow the ramp a little bit? Yeah, probably. But I'd be, you know, far happier if they simply said, you know, for too long, management has really been too far removed from this process of actually creating aircraft. And that's going to change. I don't think we're going to hear that anytime soon. That uh, fuselage plug, though, uh, is, uh, and I'm not busting on uh, or trying to be unnecessarily critical of Spirit Aero Systems on this, but it looks like it was, a, right, I mean, they're the ones who did the work. They're the ones who assemble these fuselages and send them to Renton and the world's tiniest factory that produces the most amount of airplanes per square feet of anything on the planet. But that's just because they get completed fuselages that arrive there, right? And every, everything else arrives there. How does this change anything on the supplier level, Richard? And does this accelerate the reabsorption of spirit at some point back into Boeing, right? I mean, something which which we've discussed since it was a part of Boeing and spun out under the guise that it was, you know, financial innovation. I mean, you know, something that made sense to people who were trying to monetize off it, but maybe not made sense sort of more, more broadly. Yeah. I think that would be an extraordinary admission that that whole thing was a bad idea, not just, you know, spirit, but everything to do with devolving responsibility to suppliers. I don't think you're going to see that from, from this management. Could it happen with different management of the future? Possible, but not with this management. Now, what you will likely see, and you've already seen some of it, you know, the first thing Pat Shanahan did when he came in as CEO of Spirit was make his highest priority renegotiating contracts. And that speaks to, again, resources provided for the, you know, <laughs> the creation of the most important part, because as you say, you know, that rented factory is awfully small, because the entire body is built elsewhere. Um, and for years, Spirit had been subject to exactly that dynamic of, you know, partnering for success. Oh, look, you've got margins. We will take them from you. And we will also take some of your aftermarket, that scrap on your shop where we'd like to sweep it up and sell it ourselves. It was, you know, just this systematic, you know, Provide no arranging for the working capital needed for your production ramp. That's your responsibility, Mr. Supplier. That all needs to change. And again, with the spirit contract renegotiation, you're seeing signs that okay, yeah, we can't do this without you, and we might need to provide the uh, resources necessary for you to have all of the, you know, the 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 well, the people, pure and simple, needed to deliver on time. And, uh, you know, with with all the, the safeguards in place and everything. So, I you know, I, I hope things are changing. Uh, <laughs> will it come all the way to, you know, a full blown reversal of everything that Boeing has uh, has moved towards over the past couple of decades? Again, probably not with this management. 
Ron, uh, let me go uh, back to you. This year was the 15th year of our partnership on uh, B of A's uh, annual uh, Defense and Aerospace uh, Conference. Uh, and it's a great two-day event uh, up in uh, New York where we talk everything from budgetary strategy, uh, corporate specifics, uh, commercial airlines. Uh, the, the great uh, Dr. Adam Polarski of Avitas uh, gave his sort of economic forecast where he sort of fell on the hard landing a uh, bit of things in his normal uh, amusing uh, fashion. We looked at naval trends. We look at global security trends, air power trends. Uh, and we even uh, were fortunate enough uh, to have uh, the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, join us for a conversation. Walk, walk us through what you thought were some of the interesting storylines that are going to be shaping um, shaping the the coming year. And Richard, want to get your sense as well before I go back uh, go back to Sash because Richard, you're a key. You know, since the founding of this conference, you've been a key key voice in it in terms of uh, viewer uh, forecasting and presentation as well, which is always well well received. Let's start off with you, Ron. Just one last comment on the seven three seven situation, then we can jump to the the conference. And and I think this is the part I find a little mind numbing. So let me let me paint a little picture for you. You walk into the car dealership, you buy the car, you take it home. You bought the car on October 31st. Um, it's the first week of January. You open the car door and it falls off. That just gives you pause. And if you think about what happened to Alaska Airlines, that's kind of what happened. Is the door design wrong? Nope. Why did it fall off? And, and I think that's got to be unpacked and that that's the key situation here. Because when I, when I put my feet up as a, as an aerospace engineer and head back and kind of think about this, it's a door plug. That's it. The cork, why'd the cork pop out? Right. I mean, it's just, just mind numbing. And I think that has to be well understood. Um, and then I think what complicates things here, Boeing's not ticketing their airplanes when they come off that seven through seven line, the FAA is. So, you know, there's there's a lot of hands on this one, um, and it'll be interesting to see how it, it all all plays out. So, anyway, that's my thought on that. Um, at the conference, a, a couple things jumped out at me, particularly on the defense side. We hit, we hit a lot of the commercial stuff. Um, one, how dangerous the global threat environment is right now and how unappreciated that broadly is. And, and Vago, you know, from you know, doing this together for 15 years, it's really rare where everybody at the conference is on the same thing. Everybody. I mean, there was no, there was nobody at the conference who was saying, yeah, yeah, it's not so bad out there. We heard from a number of different participants from think tanks, retired military, current military, current government staff saying, Hey, yeah, you know, the threat environment is as bad as we've seen it, or maybe even worse than we've ever seen it. Um, so what's that make me believe? I mean, Sadly, that suggests that defense spending, like Richard mentioned earlier, um, will will get the support ultimately that it'll need. You know, election year or, or or otherwise, there could be a lot of noise around the budgetary process with the with the two step um, situation we're in. You know, the two deadlines, January nineteenth, February second. But when it's all said and done, we'll we'll get a, a, a robust defense budget. My broader takeaway is. And, and there's a lot of talk about you know constraints on defense spending, but ultimately, and not to overplay this hand, but if 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 we're going to protect Pax Americana in the future, defense spending has to rise as a percentage of GDP as we walk out over the next decade, uh, and that's probably going to drive some hard choices uh, in the government from 
um, a spending perspective and a revenue generation perspective. But in, uh, unless we're going to say, all right, eh, you know, impacts Americana was nice, but it's over. Unless there's a Congress that's willing to do that, um, defense spending's going to have to rise. Uh, and then, you know, other other big takeaways were, you know, the strain in the industrial base, particularly in the shipbuilding industrial base um, uh, around uh, around submarines. Um, you know, we, we kind of knew that, but it's just, you know, it, it, it's in- interesting to to hear that. Um, and I think, you know, I could wax on for a while, but why don't I stop there and, and hand it back to you? Because I know you, you, you and Richard have some things to say. Um, I'm 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 uh, uh, I'm not saying this just because I'm partnered with you on it. I think the conference is unique because it brings all of these voices together, uh, whether from the think tank side, or whether from the government side, and also uh, and some of the best analysts to try to take a look at some of the the hard questions and even disagree. Right? I mean, uh, Michelle Merlizzo uh, joined us and said that he thought the outlook for Boeing was not as bad. Right? I mean, so we have a lot of different voices uh, at the at the uh, conference to try to give the audience. Uh, which this year was what about 300 uh, folks, uh, uh, Ron, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so you know, to try to give everybody the best equipped uh, forecast for uh, the coming year. Uh, Richard, uh, give us give us your sense on what you thought some of the important takeaways from the conference were. Yeah, you know, uh, again, the geopolitical aspect just tension, 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 mostly with China, but it's pretty obvious that the situation with Russia has changed too. That uh, you know, there is the the risk of well, them <laughs> actually <laughs> doing better than we would have thought, um, given the Ukrainian situation and and the West reluctance to uh, to properly arm Ukraine in a timely way. That was certainly concerning. But still, it's all about China. And I thought your interview with uh, Secretary Kendall was uh, was absolutely fascinating. Very well done. Uh, you know, it's pretty clear that because of the quantitative situation dictated both by you know, structural forces and geographic forces, we need that third offset, as it used to be termed, and I, I think probably should still be termed. And I went through grad school during the middle of the second offset. Indeed, I wrote my master's thesis on the follow-on forces attack subconcept of the second offset. And you know, the, the third offset is sort of, it. we appear to be trying to make something happy, you know, happen faster than it has in the past. You know, these things take a great deal of time. Um, yeah, everything from collaborative combat aircraft to JADC2 to, to whatever else. And there's also a great deal of uncertainty. You know, you look at um, second offset, it harnessed the power of everything from satellites to, to smaller computers to, uh, you know, to data links and, and, and whatever else. Um, we're looking around the world of technology, everything from artificial intelligence to, uh, well, to uh, again, stat- satellite constellations and whatever else, and, and trying to make it fit and trying to make it, you know, trying to harness it to military technology to arrange for a third offset that compensates for the disparity in forces. Uh, this is this is tricky, right? <laughs> it's it's, and I think from an investor standpoint, you know, looking around, there, there's a lot of uncertainty as to how to play it. Who the winners are going to be, what's going to be oversold, you know, the tale of hypersonics alone could fill volumes, you know, good idea, bad idea, misplaced priority, how quickly can it really be accelerated, you know, to what extent is uh, all of this stuff always going to be five to ten years away, you know, just very big questions, but it's clear that it's, it's all needed in terms of, you know, just again, addressing that disparity in forces, uh, and it's going to be funded very well. I think what is 
impressive when you look at it is the department recognizes it as a problem and how it's addressing each one of these discrete parts, right? I mean, it's a big elephant that has to be eaten, meaning accelerating the whole process. And you do see a lot of progress happening within it, right? So even though people look at it and they go, ah, they're moving too slow. Well, you need people who are saying it's moving too slow, like Secretary Kendall and others, uh, and putting that sense of urgency into the system to deliver deliver organizational outcomes, right? The service is going to reorganize. JJ uh, uh, Gertler was at the conference as well. Uh, Mike Pohus on the Air Power podcast. And we're going to be discussing in detail some of the things the uh, secretary uh, had, had to say. Uh, much of it he said before. Uh, I did think some of the details on uh, Replicator were interesting, that it is a real program and the Navy has three um, um, uh, candidates for it, and the Air Force has submitted a candidate for it as well. I thought that was kind of an interesting element uh, of it as well. So that to me was interesting. People get it; they understand the problems. They are trying to move the process forward. And I talked to, uh, I did a fireside chat with Sham Senkar uh, of Palantir, uh, and and that was interesting. That he also thought, right, the ball is moving, even if perhaps the ball is not moving as fast as everybody would like it to move. There is the signs of it moving. Um, uh, Sash, from from your perspective, what do you think are going to be the big uh, European defense uh, stories of the year and the trend lines that we should be looking at? Right, uh, because um, there there is a sense that, given concern about depending on what side of the political aisle you're on, uh, about Donald Trump's return to office, that that is propelling Europeans actually to spend more money, for example, right? Because we may not be able to depend. What What are some other trends that you're tracking on on, on your side of the Atlantic that you think are going to be most impactful in, in 2024? And then Ron and Richard, I'll come back to you uh, as we wrap up the program. Go ahead. I'm just going to start by, uh, I just want to highlight um, one of the many gems that Richard uh, put out just now, which you know may have got lost for some listeners. You know, second offset, third offset, all that sort of stuff. It's there to compensate for the fact that Western nations don't have enough stuff and don't have enough people, uh, you know, people in, in uniform. Um, it's, and it's not obvious when you look at the wars being fought at the moment that however many offsets you have adequately compensates in a long war for a lack of materiel in the first place. Um, God, I hope it does, because that's the, you know, that's the bet that the U.S. is placing. But um I don't see the Ukrainians or even the Russians being particularly interested in offsets so much as material and consumption and the ability to regenerate over a long period of time. Um, so what is the, you know, I think the big issue for Europe, it's going to be very hard to establish trend lines, I think, during 2024, when there are so many uh, elections outstanding. So at the moment, the UK by default, is cutting defence spending or, you know, cutting forces available. At the moment, you know, the, the highlight seems to be on ships because no, well, you know, the Conservative government, which has been pretty weak on defence, um, Ben Wallace's uh, tenure as uh, defence secretary notwithstanding, they're standing for election this year. They're not going to put up defence spending because putting up defence spending doesn't win anybody elections. After the election, I think the incoming defence secretary, whoever it is, but you know, more likely than not on the basis of current polling to be um, uh, a Labour defence secretary is going to have to, you know, make some extremely unpleasant decisions. The likelihood is that in the UK, as well as in most other European nations, taxation goes up to, to pay for defence. But you won't find a poll saying that on, um, you know, uh, January the 7th, January the 8th of this year, because they know they'd get voted out of office. That's the unpleasant truth about it. 
the, the Donald Trump um, risk for Europe is a very, very real one. That is certainly starting to concentrate minds. But I do detect that an awful lot of, uh, you know, European officials and even more politicians are still whistling and just, you know, hoping that that risk will go away. It feels quite a long time away in political terms because politicians think in terms of hours, days and, you know, long term is weeks. And hence, you know, that's a that's an end of the year risk. But boy, if, you know, if defence spending hasn't started to go up by then, the, you know, the effective breakup of NATO and the degree to which European nations are going to have to pay for their own defence for change is going to be cataclysmic um, in terms of, you know, the, the knock on effects to other spending or what were other spending priorities for European governments. Guys, thanks very much uh, for joining us. It was a great 2023 and look forward to a great 2024 uh, as well. And uh, thanks uh, so much for uh, your guys' time. I hope you guys have a great week and look forward to having you back on again uh, next week. And a quick word from our sponsors, uh, Bell, HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. And remember to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who help clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Hope everybody has a great remainder of uh, the weekend and tune again, uh, tune in again tomorrow for our first look ahead segment uh, of the year, as well as what to expect at the Surface Navy Association's uh, annual symposium uh, this week, Monday through Wednesday. Until then, hope everybody has a great day and we'll see you again tomorrow. Thanks very much.